Okay, so back at the beginning of the Hebrews sermon series, we came to a sermon series that was about devotion to the Lord and not drifting. So we want to be devoted people. We don't want to be people who drift. And so on that Sunday morning, I made available these little rubber duckies, all right? These little rubber duckies that I wanted you to write the word devote or devoted to. And on that Sunday, we passed those rubber duckies out to you after the service because those rubber duckies squeaked, and we heard them a lot after the service was over, okay, how, how much they squeaked. And so I had another thing I wanted to do this morning, and I thought, these things don't squeak, so I can pass them out before the service. Now, was that a good idea? In hindsight, probably not, <laughs> but that's okay. They're already passed out. I can't get them back at this point. So, uh, you know, I, I expect I'll look out there, and some of you guys will be wearing these glasses during the sermon. I can live with that, okay, that's fine. Kids, we're going to use these glasses for something later. I'm going to ask you to write something on the top. So if you've got a pair of these, I want you to, uh, to be able to use them later. You can color on them or whatever, but I have a word that I want you to, to write on there. I was doing some research this week on 3D technology, looking back to 3D technology. In 1838, Charles Wheatstone was the first scientist to develop the use of 3D images. So I didn't know how far 3D went back. It goes back to 1838. I don't think your glasses are going to help you with that little picture on the right. It might, though I absolutely love the couple on the left. If any of you could recreate that picture and send it to me, that would make me so happy. So uh, love that picture. The one on the right are those books that you get where apparently if you cross your eyes, you can see an image. Mainly you just want to throw those books against the wall. Like they're just frustrating, you know, like I can't, I can't see the image. I can't promise you your glasses can see that. They probably can't, honestly, but it's still fun to think about it. Okay, 1838, we have Charles Wheatstone uh, learning to recreate 3D images. In 1891, a French scientist, of whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, but in 1891, a French scientist patented those anaglyphs where you see the two images that are superimposed on top of one another, one in red, one in blue. And he was the scientist in 1891 who realized that if you superimpose two images of different color channels and you look through them in different colors, it looked like the image was in 3D. So 1891 is where that technology starts to take off. And you think about what 3D looks like now, what it means now. It, it's incredible where that technology has gone. Now you might say, Okay, that's okay, but what in the world does that have to do with, with the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's do a Bible study of Hebrews chapter 10, and then I'm going to come back around, and we're going to talk about the gospel in 3D, okay? So let's, let's work our way through Hebrews chapter 10. We love to study God's Word together in Emmaus. We're going to work our way through here, and then I'm going to ask you to do something with these glasses, and I hope they become a, a good gift and a good Bible bookmark for you. Verse 1, here's what God's Word says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now you're going to find that Hebrews chapter 10 is this incredible transition chapter. It's picking up all these themes we've seen along the way. And then it's transitioning us to the end of this book, the end of this sermon that, that's being given here. And so here, when it talks about the law, it's talking about the Old Covenant. Uh, you might even equate it to the Old Testament portion of the Bible, the priest who would give these 
sacrifices and the laws that were given to the people. And we know that the law is but a shadow. It, it wasn't the final part of God's plan. The law was one day going to be fulfilled when Jesus came. So it's a shadow. And it can never do what? It can never make perfect those who draw near. So the people who were trying to draw near to God, who were trying to deal with the sin in their life, who were trying to come near to God and find his blessings and find his hope in their lives, find his forgiveness, they were never able to be perfected through all of those sacrifices that were given in the law. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, if they could have been made perfect, if they could have been able to draw near to God, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered why offer these sacrifices over and over and over again? Because if they had been made perfect, the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So what the author is saying here is if you look at the Old Testament, there are certain sacrifices that are offered almost daily, certain sacrifices that are offered weekly, and then this very famous set of sacrifices that were offered once per year on what was called the Day of Atonement. And you can look back in your Bible, Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is this beautiful background to everything you see happening in Hebrews chapter 10, this Day of Atonement idea. Here's what the author's point is. If those sacrifices in the Old Covenant, if they could take care of your sins completely, why did we keep offering those things day after day, week after week, especially year after year? They should be able to perfect the conscience. Here's where this scripture gets us to the point of today's sermon and, and where we want to go. This is the pain of legalism. This is the pain of living with a guilty, shame-filled, twisted conscience. This is the feeling that you have in your life where you always wonder, have I done enough to stand before the Lord? Do I need to offer another sacrifice? Do I need to attend to another religious observance? Do I need to give more money? Do I need to follow more laws? I'm constantly trying to do something to deal with my sin problem, to deal with my conscience. And if you grew up in a legalistic church background, you know the pain of constantly feeling like you need to do something else. Something else and then I'll be right with God. Something else and then I'll please the religious people. Something else and then my conscience and my guilt and my shame will be dealt with. And there's this constant need to feel like you have to offer another sacrifice. You have to do something new. You're never able to be clean, to be purified, to be forgiven. Verse 3. What do you do about that? Verse 3. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, just like the law, um, I'm reading through the book of Romans now with some guys, and we're kind of uh, working through this book together, but reading through the book of Romans, you find out that the Old Testament law, one of the things it does is it just reminds you of your sin. It, when you look at God's law, and it's a mirror pointing back to you, you realize, I fall short of that. These sacrifices that were offered every year, every time somebody came to offer a sacrifice, you know what it reminded them? I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And then they had to offer it next year, and next year, and next year. They continued to do it because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
Now, this is the book of Hebrews over and over and over again. It sets up a picture of the old covenant, how the old covenant wasn't able to bring us to fulfillment. And then it says, and then Christ came. And he did what that old covenant was never able to do. He fulfilled God's plans all along. He came, and if you notice in the middle of verse 6 in your Bible, the font probably changes, or the spacing changes, or it's indented over a little bit. What's happening there is, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. So it's a quote from Psalm chapter 40. And, and Jesus is picking up, or the preacher is picking up these words in reference to Jesus here, that when Christ came, it's like he's saying these words God sacrifices and offerings. You don't need more of those. But you have given me a body. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking through the words of the Old Testament. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said... Those words, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. Verse 9, he added on top of that, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Wow. Hebrews 10, 9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second is almost a summary of the book of Hebrews at this point. Now, when you hear does away with, remember this is not anti-Old Testament. We're not getting rid of the Old Testament. We're not getting rid of the Jewish people or the Jewish faith. This is not what this is about. This is just saying that first was always meant to point to a second. And if we don't get to a second, we miss the purpose all along. You've done away with the first, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, because there was a second covenant coming. And how was that second covenant going to come? It was going to come through the body and blood of Jesus. Verse 10. And by God's will, by that will, that you would give me a body, the author says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a verse worth, worth underlining in your Bible. <laughs> like that's, that's a verse that you can take with you. That by the will of God, we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for how long? Once for all, Jesus gave himself through his life and his death and his resurrection so that we can be sanctified. Now, if you'll hold off for just a couple of minutes, I'm going to come back around and explain the word sanctified because sanctified is one of those $100 Bible words that you're like, I want to pretend like I know what it means, but I really don't know what it means. And so we're going to come back around and we're going to talk about the word sanctified. However, before we get to that point, this is the moment that we all look forward to in the sermon when the grammar people in the room unite and we have our moment together and everybody just watches us, okay? So this is where when you love grammar, this is our, our point to connect here. Up here, by that will, so by that will of God, we have been sanctified. The way the grammar is working here is this is something that has already happened in our lives and it has ongoing impact ongoing influence in our lives. There's a type of verb that works in this such a way to say, this has happened. This is a reality that has happened in my life, and it has ongoing impact in my life. And then we're going to watch in verse 14 in just a moment how that all comes back around. Before we get there, verse 11. Let's keep rolling. Verse 11. It's talking about the old covenant. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Man, you read verse 11 and you just feel the futility of it. And I was trying to think of what this feels like to do something over and over and over again and not feel like you're making any progress. Laundry? Anyone? Like, <laughs> like I just stand in front of the washing machine week after week and day after day, and, and I still have clothes to wash or, uh, or dishes. Um, I'm certain that our kids just randomly grab dishes out of, the, out of the cupboard and put them in the sink. Like, I have no idea where these dishes come from. We wash them, we wash them, and more appear. Um, or that early stage with kids where you're just constantly cleaning bottles. You're like, I'm, I'm never going to ever in my life, stop cleaning bottles. Uh, it's this idea that you do something over and over and over again, and you feel like I've made no progress. Like, I, I'm not getting anywhere with this situation. Verse 12, but when Christ came, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Whoa, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He sat down. Notice the contrast here. What are the priests doing in verse 11? They are standing, having to continually offer these sacrifices. What's the contrast with Jesus here? He sat down because he had made the ultimate sacrifice once for all. You know those days when you come home from work or you come home from school and you tell yourself, I better not sit down because if I sit down, there's no way I'm getting back up. <laughs> like, you come down and you're like, I am so tired that if I don't do what I need to do, if I sit down, I'm never getting back up. Friends, Jesus sat down because it represented that the final sacrifice had been made. The final offering had been made. He had come once for all to give the sacrifice, to give the offering that would bring an end to the need for any more sacrifices or offering. And one day, we will see that brought to completion. Now verse 14. Look at what happens in verse 14. For by a single offering, he offered one offering, he has perfected. Again, this idea, it's happened, it's already been completed. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now here's some interesting language. In the Bible, the word for sanctified means to be made holy. So if you see the word sanctified in your Bible, it's the word for being made holy, being made right with God, not only on the outside, but internally as well, being cleansed and, and brought back to perfection as God created us to be before him. And so we've been made holy. So here's the tension in the Christian life. Have those who trusted in Jesus already been sanctified? Yes, 100, 1,000 times yes, that you have been sanctified. Sometimes the big word we use for this is called justified or justification. We'll use a word like this, or I've been saved. It's this idea that once for all, Jesus has dealt with my sin problem. Are we also continually being sanctified? Yeah, Scripture says we are. We're continuing to have God's work happen in our lives. So have I been saved? Have I been sanctified? Yes, Scripture says yes, absolutely, those who have trusted in Jesus. Am I continually being made holy? Yes, because we're a hot mess most of the time. Like, we're just a mess. We're, we're continuing to battle against sin. We're continuing to struggle, but God is continuing to work in our lives through Christ. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
For after saying, this is that covenant language we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We talked about this before. The first covenant came and then the second covenant. What's this new covenant, this second covenant all about? God works internally. He changes us from the inside out. And he works eternally. He is able to deal with our sins for all of eternity. That is the good news of the new covenant when Jesus came. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then in verse 19, if you're looking at a hard copy of the Bible, you may see a, a heading, like it, this idea that in verse 19, if you're looking at your Bible, we're going to a new section here in verse 19. Based on everything we've seen up to this point in the book of Hebrews, we're about to make a transition. And if you like to write in your Bible, let me give you something really quick you can write in your Bible. If you like to write in your Bible, at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, right out to the side, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Because what's happening at this point in your Bible is the author started talking about this back at the end of chapter 4, and then the longest chase a rabbit moment in history, and now he's going to come back, and he's going to fulfill that idea. None of you guys chase rabbits, you know, when you talk or teach or anything like that. And so the author has a reason for doing this. He's taking on this journey, and then here in verse 19, he's coming back to something he said in chapter 4. So let's look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That image that at the death of Jesus, when the curtain was torn in the temple, providing access to the place of God and God's power pouring out on his people, the imagery there is of the flesh of Jesus being torn as well as the curtain was torn. Admittedly, Kind of a gory, kind of a gory image, but it's a powerful image as well that with the tearing of Jesus' flesh, the curtain is torn that provides access to the place of God's presence and power. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's get to verse 22. You're going to see two things we're supposed to do. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Based on what Jesus has done for you, friends, hear me out. This is the core theology of this passage. Based on what Jesus has done for you, offering his body as the perfect sacrifice once for all, what are you able to do? You are able to draw near to God and to find yourself washed clean. It's the imagery of baptism here. Now, obviously, we realize that the outward washing of baptism, it has to correspond to this internal sprinkling of our heart, this internal sanctification and cleansing that's happened. If you're here this morning, you've never been baptized, and you have questions about why do we do that, what does that mean, man, reach out to someone. You see this picture of drawing near to God, and it's represented not only by worship and drawing near to God, but this picture of baptism. And then verse 23, what else do we do? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Hold fast to Jesus. Don't let go of what he has done for you. Now you might say, man, I love to study the Bible. That's really cool. What in the world are you doing with these things <laughs> this morning? Like, where does that fit in? Okay, here's where we make the connection, and, and I hope this is encouraging to you and, and helpful to you in the days ahead. When you think about religions in the world, when you think about religions in the world, I think we can almost divide them into three different words, okay? The first word would be do, D-O. Another option would be don't. So do or don't. A lot of religions, a lot of approaches to spirituality in the world are based on do or don't. In order to be made right with God, in order to find eternal hope and salvation, in order to be a part of the people of God, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. Follow this religious, religious observance, go to this religious event, some of you grew up in churches where you had to do these certain things to gain grace, to gain access to grace. Or those of you who live with a really guilty conscience all the time, and, and you were the kid uh, growing up in church that you just got saved every time you got a chance to be saved. Like every Sunday when Just As I Am played, you were headed down front. Every year at Falls Creek, you're going to be saved again because you're just weighed down by this guilty conscience. Like I, I'm always finding myself doing the right wrong thing or, or have I done enough of the right thing and the weird thing is we live in a culture today that isn't particularly religious but they still thrive on do or don't and if you don't believe me just check out social media for a minute okay because we live in a world where you're constantly being told you need to work out more you need to learn more, you need to make more money, you need to have more experiences, you need to travel more, and at the same time, man, don't mess up by supporting the, long, the wrong thing that week, because you don't know, like next week it's going to change, like you don't know what people are mad about today, and then tomorrow they're going to be mad about something else, and if you support the wrong thing today, tomorrow you're going to be on the other side of the issue, and we just live in a culture where nobody ever knows where they stand. Have I done enough have I avoided the, the correct things? There's no peace. There's no stability. Sometimes people will, will say things to me at the time of a funeral, and they're, they're reflecting on their own life, and they'll say something like, man, I hope I've done enough to stand before the Lord one day. I hope I've done enough to stand before the Lord one day. And you never want to be rude in that moment, but the answer is, you have not. I can promise you, you, you have not. That if your eternal hope, if your hope and life and death is that one day you will stand before the Lord hoping that you have done enough, you absolutely have not. Or some people think, if I avoid the right things in this life, if I don't, uh, what's the old adage, if I don't uh, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, like, <laughs> if, if I avoid the correct things, then maybe I'll be pure enough to stand before the Lord one day. It doesn't work like that. We don't cleanse ourselves. Do and don't never lead to done. If your peace in life, if your hope in eternity is trying to do more or don't do certain things, you're never going to reach an end. There's no end to be reached. Do and don't never lead to done. But there's a third type of religion. There's a third type of faith. 
and it's based on the word done. Kids, if you've got a pen or a crayon in front of you and you've got a set of these glasses, adults, I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Right there in the middle of the, the glasses, maybe on the side somewhere, write the word done. D-O-N-E. D-O-N-E. Some religions, some people's life is based on what they're doing. Some people's life and their religion is based on the word don't. We are here to say that the greatest news in the history of the world is the word done. It is finished. That Jesus has done for you and for us what we could never do for ourselves. That when he died on the cross, he completed the sacrifices all, all, for all of time. He was perfectly righteous. He had done all the works of the law. He was without sin. He had taken care of all the don'ts. And so what you can do, this is, this is such a, a great opportunity. If you're ever talking with someone about Christianity or about faith, and you're, you're at a restaurant and you're talking to them and there's a napkin out in front of you, all you have to do is write the word do, the word don't, and the word done, and ask them, when you think about your life, which of those three words gives you the most hope? And you could say something about the gospel in 3D or, you know, religion in 3D. There's three Ds. There's three things that you could base your life on. Do, don't, or done. What do you want to base your life on? Man, I'm standing before you right here today saying, I like the word done. Not because we're lazy, not because we're passive, but because we realize our hopelessness. We realize how weak we are. We realize that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but praise be to God, Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that provides such beautiful hope. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself trying to have the willpower to get your life together, you find yourself in life thinking, maybe if I do this, then I'll finally make these people happy. Maybe if I don't do that, God will receive me. The greatest thing you can do this morning is just raise your hands and surrender and say, Lord, I trust in what Jesus has done. He is my only hope. And you might say, oh man, so the word done, like it's all taken care of, so I can do whatever I want to in life now, right? No. Done leads to do, don't, and do. I know we're kind of like, who's on first here? Okay, so follow me. Don't and do can never lead to done because you're just going to, you're on this hamster wheel. You're just trying to do more. You're just constantly going. But when you get to done, when you realize what Jesus has done for you, then you have freedom to say, oh man, I want to live my life fully for the Lord. When I realize what Jesus has done for me, I want everything I do to be done for him. When I go to work, when I spend time with my family, when I go out in the world, I want to live in a way that shows that I want to do God's will in the world. And when I realize what Jesus has done for me, there's a lot of things I want to avoid. I don't want to let go of his goodness. I I don't want to live in sin, not because I'm trying to earn forgiveness, but because I recognize what Jesus has done for me, that he has set me free from sin. I don't have to live in that anymore. And the church becomes such a perfect picture of this. And we're going to talk about this next week, about how the church is able to help us understand this word done 
and then lead us to do what we're supposed to do and not do what we're not supposed to do. We're going to get to that next week. Here's what I want to put in front of you today, though. Do, don't, done. Which of those words describes your life, your approach to religion, your approach to relationship with God today that you would know that you can draw near to God? I would say because of the type of church we are and and just knowing what I know about Emmaus, there's a lot of people in here that struggle with a guilty conscience. (laughs) There's a lot of people in here that have dealt with a lot of doubt in their life about a relationship with God. You've gotten saved over and over and over again. If you remember back in the day, old school church, let's go in the Wayback Machine and go back to old school church. um, There was a phrase that was used sometimes that was called white knuckling. Uh, So the final song is playing in the little country church, just as I am is playing, or I surrender all is playing, playing, and you know you need to do something. You're caught up in this tension, and so white knuckling was when you gripped the pew in front of you because you thought, man, I just, I don't want to let go. Like, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And when you let go of that and you put your hands out before the Lord and say, I trust in what Jesus has done, friends, there's such incredible freedom in that, that you would know that you can draw near to the Lord and that you would not let go of that. There's another thing that we would do in old school church growing up. There was a thing that happened called rededication. So you were trying to live your life for the Lord, and then you felt like life was going sideways, and you wanted to come back to following Jesus. And so we would talk about this idea of rededication. And that's a powerful idea that, God, I would focus back on this. But hear me out, hear me out, hear me out, Emmaus, because I know who we are as a church. Rededicating your life to the Lord is not about re-upping your willpower that you're going to try to do better this time rededicating your life to the Lord is coming back to remember what Jesus has done for you. That he has set you free from sin and he has given you his righteousness so that you would be able to live out the will of God for your life. And so if we're not careful, we hear rededication and we think, man, I need to try harder next time to impress God and impress other people. That is not what we are about. We are about the good news of Jesus that he has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to have a chance here in just a moment to stand up and sing about this victory, this rest that we have in Jesus. And as we stand up to sing, if you've been trying to get your life together, if you find yourself constantly battling doubt and a guilty conscience, and this feeling that you just have never done enough, you never do the right thing, you can never please people, you can never please God, if you find yourself in that place, that you would come for prayer. Come and let someone pray for you. Come to the front maybe and just kneel here. Maybe you're here today, and you truly need to rededicate yourself to the Lord. Your spiritual life has been dry, and it's been weak, You find yourself walking the wrong direction and God is calling you to rededicate. And what you need to rededicate yourself to is just a reminder of how good the good news of Jesus truly is. And maybe what you would do during this time is you would just sing the words of the song and say, Lord, I believe this. I believe this is true. 
My life is not going to be defined by do. My life is not going to be defined by don't. My life is defined by done, by what Jesus has done, and he is where I find hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.